part three, work principles. Um, we're going to start off by the four main points of, uh, you know, outlining this entire part of the book and really the, the meat and potatoes of, you know, what he tries to put forth here. Um, and then we're going to let Grant explain what an ideal meritocracy is. And we'll start off. It's an organization uh, work principle. So the first point is an organization is a machine consisting of two major parts, culture and people. Second point is tough love is an effective for both achieving both great work and great relationships. And then number three, a believably weighted idea meritocracy is the best system for making effective decisions. And then number four, make your passion and your work one and the same and do it with people you want to be with. Love it. That's what I want. Um, so yeah, believably believability weighted idea meritocracy. I think the idea of meritocracy is inherently believability weighted. Um, and so for me, just to go over my, my, uh, perspective on it, uh, meritocracy is, um, a group of people that are like an organization that's built on merit unlike uh, democracy, which is majority rule or, you know, other kinds of ocracies out there. So merit is the God over here and they're basically looking for the best tool for the job. And that, um, is the way to sort their hierarchy is, is who has the most merit. Um, <clears throat> Ray has a lot of different techniques that I like and learned and had no idea. So it was a huge paradigm shift for me to learn about, um, you know, what does a, a believable person look like and, and like, where's the, cause I was like, man, you know, am I, am I an expert or, or what's going on here? But he says, if you've successfully completed something three times in the given area, then you can be a believable person. But if not, then, you know, maybe you could be a, a student or, or a different, um, you know, have a different relationship with the discussion. Um, so to me, a meritocracy is the best because it's, uh, it, it just, it feels cleaner. You know, like we're all, it just, we're trying to get rid of all the bullshit and basically the ego, like all the, like a democracy or, you know, whatever else I can't even think right now, all has different tactics and stuff to facilitate ego or, um, you know, like if I was just a king, you know, obviously I could do whatever I wanted, egos rolling. And so this is probably the opposite of that, which is just basically dedicated towards the truth and, um, and staying in the light versus the darkness. Well, and I think uh, a lot of great points there. Um, but let's let's try to use an example here. So, like, you know, one of the things that he does, right, is he gives power to the people that have a seat at the table. Whereas in most executive situations, you know, the CEO has the ultimate say, right? And you know, when you're in idea meritocracy, all the people sitting here, the five of us, have our own take on the given situation, right? And with that given situation right? We're going to have our own ideas on what the solution is. But in a place where the culture is top and when people are able to take tough criticism, they're going to give their honest feedback. And based on what everyone has together, you're going to come with a solution if everyone's giving honest and good feedback. So you're putting the system of head of individuals um, and you're putting the group before individuals. And, and I like that because I think that there's two kinds of people basically in the world. There's givers and takers. There's people that meet their basic human needs by taking from others. And there's people who meet their basic human needs by giving value to the group and to people that they associate with. Um, so I like that because Ray, many times he's mentioned in the book, says I had to, even though I have all the power and I could, 
you know, I'm going to go with the person who is believable and, you know, honor the system. And if he didn't do that, then the whole system would fall apart. The, the house of cards would fall immediately. Absolutely. And, you know, it's something that, you know, it's hard to grasp. I mean, I even say it and it's like to, to put the pieces together and to see it working together um, because it's so foreign, man. In most working situations, that's not how things operate. You take orders from the top down. You, you know, these are the rules and this is why. And, you know, I grew up in a family where my stepfather was a military guy, right? And he had the ultimate command and his decision making was not based around logic. It wasn't the right answer. It was because he said so. It, absolutely ridiculous. And for a kid that, you know, granted, I've got my degree in chemistry and I have some form of intelligence. He, this man was not very intelligent at all. Um, and it was funny because I had a call with my stepbrother today uh, and then we were talking about uh, a friend of mine and I was telling her, him about her. Uh, and he was like, you know, she's like, she's a great person, but she kind of is a little stupid at the end of the day. And he's like, you know who that reminds you of is, you know, my dad. And I laughed so hard because it was so true, man. And, and dealing with people that, you know, not everyone's going to be at the same level with you. And, and that doesn't mean that they're not, um, you know, valuable in their own way, but you just don't see things the same way. And if you're trying to go for the solution, you know, the, the truth is the truth, regardless of how we come to it. Right. And, um, you know, being in a situation where you might be looking at the truth and even though that you're in a position where you're not of authority and that you're, you know, 14 years old, seeing things the way it is and then saying it and then still being wrong, it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's a tough pill to swallow for sure. I just want to delineate a little bit between believability and meritocracy um, because in general, in like the general meanings of their terms, um, believability could be seen as a component of meritocracy, kind of like Grant was saying, they're sort of one and the same. But in this like specific sentence that Dalio is saying, or this specific concept, believability relates to the source and meritocracy relates to the idea itself. So it's the idea meritocracy where it's not about, um, you know, necessarily what words the person used to say the idea or whether it was an email or an in-person meeting. Oh, I really like when a guy comes in and says his ideas. It's really getting down to the idea itself and assessing its merit and ranking it based on that, but then also filtering it through believability. So if one guy has this awesome idea that seems like it's really going to work, but he's never done it before, he doesn't know anybody who's ever done it before, and another guy who has done it his entire life has an idea that doesn't really sound as great, but it'll probably still work, it's just not as pie in the sky, you filter the believability and it's like, hey man, your idea sounds really great, but we're going to go with this guy who's done it before and like his idea. So in a real world context, like if you're looking for investment in your business, and you were talking to Don, who has, has a business or is the CEO of a business um, that has been invested in and is going for another round of investment, he would be a pretty good guy to talk to, and he might have a really good idea. But if Mike actually has something different to say, and Mike is an actual investor who's been doing it for years and years and years, then you would probably weight Mike's idea a little bit higher than Don's idea. And then if you just ask some guy off the street who's only been a cashier for his entire life and never getting any investment, um, it really doesn't matter how good his idea is. If it clashes with Mike's, Mike's is going to override that. Great example. Great example. <sighs> we haven't heard from you in a while, Mr. K. Nettle. What you got for us on the first start off here to get the culture right? Trust in radical truth and radical transparency. 
I mean, I think that we've kind of uh, discussed that back in the very beginning, but you know, I was just kind of taking it all in. And, and I guess the thing that always rattles around my head is kind of one of the reasons that I've, I, I just enjoy math because math always tells a story and numbers don't lie. It's up to poli- people to you know, believe in the truth or to depart from it. And I, and I think the thing that I you know, differ a little bit from you know, in the way that that was interpreted was you know, just because you've been at the table for 30 years doesn't mean that your ideas are the best ones. And I think that's where the potential for disruption lies. And you look at like the amount of disruption that's taking place with young billionaires, you know, people in their 20s and 30s. And it was because they came you know, with something that was radically different Um, And I think that's why it's super important to listen to all perspectives because, you know, a a lot of times, you know, it is something that comes from the outside that can disrupt something in such a great degree that people are more likely to discount because they're scared. Um, So uh, that's why I, you know, even though I've been doing this for a while, it's like I try to listen to people that are much younger and much older than me and, you know, see why I might be wrong. Well, I think something that's interesting there, it's, uh, you know, circling back to, um, you know, understanding truth for what it is, right? And when you take, say, someone in their early 20s, mid-20s, you know, identifying a problem that exists in the marketplace, right? The skills that they have and the culture that they grew up in is radically different than, say, someone like me in the 30s and the 90s. Mike in the 80s and so on and so forth, right? So our conditions of growing up give us some certain way of interpreting the world. Um, and then when you have this new fresh blood entering the marketplace, it's they, they have a whole set of skills and understand problems in a, such a different way. And it's those people that can get to the root causes of those problems and then come up with so- solutions to them that um, you know people wouldn't think of otherwise because they just don't have the context to put that all together. And that, that speaks to the fact that running a believability-weighted idea meritocracy um, is, is a mouthful, but it's also um, a practice. It's a working practice. So um, like it sounds like Mike said something that was near opposite to what I said, where you know some guy off the street, I'm going to probably discount his opinion in favor of Mike's. Um, that would be a pure believability filter, right? But it's believability-weighted. So that still leaves room for... Um, what Mike was talking about, where these new guys come in off the street and, oh, hey, they're billionaires now in their 20s. Um, so it's the meritocracy of the idea and the believability of the source being combined in a one. And that's that's going to be hard to get right. Well, look at Ray. He doesn't hold any Bitcoin. You know, he doesn't, he naysays cryptocurrency. I still love Ray, but, you know, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, he's one of my heroes, but I'm just, you know, it's a great example of that. Well, and I think, uh, you know, if we want to go back to looking at problems in a very uh, distinct way, I mean, that's what crypto does, you know, not not to open up that rabbit hole. But, you know, when you understand how money actually works, right, and understand that the Federal Reserve is this private entity that controls the money supply via, you know, the different mechanisms that it has, you're taking all the power away from those guys and putting it in the hands of the people, the people that believe that this new transaction system, this new coin is something that needs to be done in the future. And the powers that be don't know what's best for everybody. And they don't know. And, 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 and like Mike alluded to earlier, the system is rigged for the people at the top. So when you go from the t- bottom up, you know, not only is that scary for the people on top, but it's, it's, it's something that's going to be moving towards the future because without that, you know, we're going to be stuck in the system forever. 
I think that you know people like Dalio too, um, because they're looked at as you know investment gurus and oracles. You know, they're they're oftentimes you know questioned about things that they might not understand. And I mean, you look at like you look at Buffett. I mean, he's that was his big principle, which is buy what you know. And it wasn't until Apple that he'd actually owned a technology company. But that doesn't change the fact that by buying what he knew, he averaged 27% a year for 50 years. So you know, I think there's a natural um, thing where we discount something that we don't understand. Um, but you know, I think one of the most powerful things that people like Ray or other you know, people is their ability to change you know, their minds, so being open to being wrong. Well, that's the radical open-mindedness. Mm-hmm. And I think it's great, too, just looking at our heroes, you know, that may not have their head wrapped around everything. Who can have their head wrapped around everything? If those guys can't, nobody can, you know. But that's why Ray talks about having a team and being, you know, uh, triangulation, which is um, getting two people that are believable to maybe have a dialogue and you watch the dialogue and see you know, what those experts are talking about or, you know, run the idea around and see, you know, what sticks. Well, and, and, you know, to kind of dig into that a little more, uh, and then this first section, I think there's two, um, key points I want to make here, uh, that are really, that are so important, but hard to practice. Right. And one of them is, you know, having integrity and then demanding it from others. But then second one, it's, uh, being radically transparent. Um, you know, and it's easy for one to control their own integrity, right? But the hard part is demanding it from others uh, and not only demanding it from them, you know, to at least your system, but understand system by everybody. Um, so laying that groundwork and say, this is what we're gonna stand for. You're going to have situations come up to you and do you compromise your integrity uh, to do something or what? Uh, and I'll give an example. Um, so for us in the tattoo space, right? Uh, we're, we created um, these all-natural vegan CBD products, right? And we believed going into it that, um, you know, the space was filled with a lot of lower-grade quality products that do not have natural ingredients, really high quality, um, to help heal the skin, right? Um, and something that I'm getting told all the time is, hey, why don't you guys come out with a numbing cream? And granted, the market for it is huge. It is a great product. It is something that people use all the time. But does that meet our, our mission and our values of what we stand out to? It does not. Um, so, you know, that's the decision of me as the CEO of the company. What do I do? You know, and I've, I've been very resistant to going that direction simply because of the integrity of what we set out to do. Um, you know, and then secondly, uh, you know, the being radically transparent, uh, that's incredibly hard to practice because, you know, I can tell you from being a boss, right, uh, working with other people, that when you're radically transparent with your employees, right, and I learned this the hard way, is that you, you, as someone that's part of the machine, especially someone who understands the moving parts and wants to understand how it all works, you know, there's information that's not, you know, that doesn't belong to every single person, right? And by flooding them with, um, you know, information that's, say, internal, uh, and that doesn't need to go to investors or that doesn't need to go to other employees, is going to distract them from their actual job, right? So, um, you know, you want to be radically transparent with the people sitting at the table with you, but you also have to be aware of the people working for you that, you know, they might not need to know this, that, or the other thing. So it's it's 
kind of a dichotomy if you ask me, but uh, you, you don't want to hide uh, the worst things, right? And you don't want to like lead people to believe that something's going to happen when it doesn't and you know, kind of go away from the integrity thing I was talking about. Mm-hmm. Well, just like probably every single other thing in this book, that radical transparency is a practice. It's not just like you read it in the book, oh, be radically transparent. Okay, I'm just going to go out and do that and you're going to do it perfectly. It's like it's a thing that you're going to have to work at probably for your whole life and still never get it totally right. Um, well, because you're being vulnerable, right? <clears throat> it's it's you're being vulnerable, you're exposing others to vulnerability, and then you're, like Don said, having to practice balance because just being extreme with anything is going to be harmful. Exactly. I mean, there was that, I don't know, five, ten years ago, it was kind of like a meme philosophy of radical candor. I don't know if anybody remembers that, where you basically just say whatever's on your mind, you don't hold anything back, like, you basically, you always tell the truth no matter what, and it was like, all right, that sounds great, but then you, like, wind up insulting people, and you wind up saying things that you probably shouldn't say. So. Well, plus, yeah, you're just running the, the just running with your emotions, you know, not even processing anything, not getting to the second and third level understanding of, yeah. So, yeah, uh, and then as we go into, say, uh, part two and part three or chapter two, chapter three, um, you know, cultivating meaningful work and meaningful relationships uh, and then also creating a culture in which it's okay to make mistakes and unacceptable to not learn from them. Um, You know, and I think those two things go hand in hand. You look at, you know, the work that you're trying to accomplish is, is the output of the machine. Whereas the relationships are the cogs within the machine, you know, and how do those cogs work cohesively together? Um, And it's the culture that those cogs interact, right? And if it's well lubricated um, and people have a space to make mistakes and they understand that, you know, I am trying to accomplish something, I might not have all the answers, I might not have even done this before, but I'm going to give it my honest shot. And then going back to seeing the you know, analysis of what went wrong, identifying that root problem, and then arming that person with the information they need to then go out and try to go right the second time. Yeah, be right, fail well. Yeah. I always watch skateboarders. I'm not a skateboarder. I used to ride BMX. But falling well is an art, you know. You got to learn how to fall. The other thing, I, I don't see it here in the outline, but I like what he says in the book is um, the more I love people, the harder that I could be on them. And it's kind of you balance it out. You know, you can't just be an asshole all the time and just only fault find. But you have to really love them, too. You know, and he says they kind of go hand in hand. So I love the crap out of them so I could be hard as hell on them. Yep. And the uh, creating a culture where you can make mistakes, but it's unacceptable to learn from them. Um, It's important. I think I don't think Dalio points it out anywhere in the book. Negligence is never okay. You know, but an honest mistake it, that's that's a learning point, and that also goes back to the um, always be like eternally truth seeking instead of trying to be correct. It's that kind of falls into this where it's actually okay not to know something or to be wrong about something, right? So if you really believe that, then you'll be fine not being correct all the time. Um, but it's unacceptable to learn something new when you have the opportunity, and that's how you be a truth seeker. So I mean, all of these principles, I a lot of them they're different words for the same like core truth, you know? Um, and, and this one in particular being applied to a workplace culture um, is extremely important for retaining and developing the talent that you have and for having happy people who are working for you and getting better results for your organization. 
It's funny because a lot of this sounds redundant. Like we're just like circling around saying the same thing. But like Don said earlier, it is hard to grasp. It's simple, but it's powerful and it's deep. And <clears throat> I think this takes so much time, like good conversation. It takes time, you know, um, being, being like top down hierarchy king doesn't take time just to be like, do what I say or you're out of here. You know, it does. It's it's inaccurate. And so accuracy takes time. And right now I'm, I got a cool job working with this uh, natural building where we build straw bale houses and eco stuff and like all that kind of hippie cool stuff. Anyway, <clears throat> all those guys are awesome and they may measure everything like 50 times while they're framing a house or building a foundation or doing whatever they're doing. And it's really cool for me to see in a different context, just like I would with a business plan, really go over the numbers, really like it's like measure twice, cut once, you know? And so that's what Dalio is doing here with just going over the don't worry about looking good, you know, or observing the path. You know, it's like it, it takes that amount of effort to really get a good idea meritocracy. And I think that's why a lot of people don't do it because it takes all that extra auxiliary work to build the infrastructure to support that. And it's hard uh, at the end of the day. It is really hard to have uh, the people uh, inputting to that idea meritocracy to be all on the same page because it's very easy to have ego creep in um, and letting those inputs come from a place of, you know, not being genuine, right? You know, maybe it's someone trying to get um, a higher position in the company. Maybe it's somebody that... Um, you know, has alternative motives for what they're suggesting and what they're trying to bring forth, right? And 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 only through proper vetting of the right people will you be comfortable uh, in executing an idea of meritocracy. Yeah, I mean, you know, the I think what he's you know outlining the basis for is you know the incredibly incredible importance of open communication and 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 also knowing how to be able to communicate things that people don't want to hear in a kind loving way that doesn't come across as criticism because your your job as a leader is to bring other people along with you um so you know there there's just subtle ways that you can reframe what you say um that convey the same point yet are actually received and i think we've all been in situations where we feel flooded and a classic example is when you're in an argument with your girlfriend or your wife or your fiance. And we've all gotten to those, those points where she says something and there's nothing else that you're able to take in. All you do is see red. And so that's when you're flooded and you see it with people at work as well. And so your idea and the goal as a leader is to never flood your employees know how much they can take, know how that you can communicate things that they will, you know, buy into and then let the seed be planted and let them run. Well, and again, that's, there's only so much you can control of what they do. Right. And, and you can equip them with knowledge they might not have, and you can maybe steer them in the right direction, but they got to sow the seed. But I love that analogy though. Just don't flood them, you know, and you can kind of see as you're pouring the cup into their glass and you may, you know, you don't want to have people that have full glasses on your team, but you know, you're, you're trying to pour it in there and you try to be mindful about their reactions and different kind of stuff. That's pretty cool. Well, it's interesting with the, the venture fund, we've got a woman who, whose name is Jennifer Robinson and she is in the business of executive and performance coaching. And the, example that I always give for people when they want to think of who she is and what she does is Wendy from Billions. You know, she simply is able to read people's energy. And we've got, you know, a guy on our team that's an engineer and looks at the raw data and the due diligence side. And then we've got somebody that's more of this really cerebral, ethereal thinker. 
and then me. I make snap judgments you know, quickly. I feel it in my gut. And so how you're able to bring all three of those you know, things to the table and make them feel equally important is where having somebody like Jennifer that sees those different styles of communication and is able to bridge the gaps between them. And I think that's one of you know, these critical pieces of running good organizations is that it takes a lot of different people, but it also takes somebody that can come in the middle and sync them all together. Well, and, and while it goes back to what he was saying before, uh, is that everyone is wired differently, but if everyone on the team has the same mission and values, uh, that is where the cohesion comes from, is because they, they aren't looking at their own position, they're looking at the best of the group, and they see the end goal collectively and ultimately want the same thing. Yeah, and you, I mean, knowing that you want to have highly competent people that have different lanes. And if your organization's goal is to drive in this direction, that you know as a leader that you can have this person over here that's handling the financial aspect and the pro forma, this person over here that's communicating the mission, the person over here that's babysitting all of the younger people and you know the people with more data entry types of jobs, that you know by having these different lanes and recognizing that sometimes the best thing you can do as a leader is get the hell out of their way, um, it is a hard thing because, you know, at points in my career, like I like to say that I'm a recovering control freak and egomaniac, like not good leadership qualities. But you, when you recognize that sometimes the best thing you can do is ride shotgun instead of always driving the bus um, is critical. Some of that higher level perspective, huh? Oh, yeah, baby. Get and say, stay in sync. I can barely say, talk sometimes. Why don't you try saying uh, slippery, slimy snakes, Don? Slippery, slimy snakes. Just got to pace myself and I'll be all right. <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> Not to make fun of people with speech impediments. That's terrible. Yeah. You know, I worked for that recently. Pat Sajak, I think, from Wheel of Fortune. Yeah. Made fun of a guy with a lisp. Or, or our, our, everyone's favorite, Donald. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Duck. Mr. Duck. <laughs> oh, man. R.I.P. Anyway. Um, uh, I think we're on... Uh, uh, four, get and stay in sync. We're getting four, yeah. Uh, so get and stay in sync. Um, you know, and I think the big thing I want to come out of this is, uh, you know, I think part 4.3 and then 4.4, um, you know, be open-minded and assertive at the same time. Uh, whereas four is if if it is your meeting to run, manage the conversation, you know, and that that kind of highlights just about everything we're just talking about. Right. And, uh, you know, it's that balance of, you know, pushing the envelope to get something done, but also being open minded to let other people's perspective change the direction. Right. And have the group work to go, uh, together. Uh, and same thing in a meeting. It's that you bring the people to sit at the table so that they have a perspective to offer. Right, because if it's one person controlling the conversation, well, you're only going to get one lane. You're getting one perspective, and they might have more experience. They might be the one who has done it before, but ultimately, that person can't do it by himself. Well, I mean, being respectful, kind, but firm, like knowing what the purpose of you know, of why you're there, and you know, making sure that you keep everybody on task. Because you know, as a person that likes to chase shiny butterflies and get distracted pretty easily, I know exactly what it means to you know, just start going down the wrong rabbit hole. And it's one of my favorite expressions in meetings is rabbit hole, 
because it tells everybody at the table that we're talking about something that doesn't matter. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, your job as the person that's dictating the pace of the meeting is keep it on course. For sure. Well, and, and it's the, uh, you know, and it's being able to be on the same page, right, and, and to see uh, that wisdom, and it's a lot of what this book is about. It's, it's equipping people with wisdom that might ha- not have the contextual experience to understand it, right? Um, and, and seeing things happening uh, from a different lens that, you know, it's, it's okay, let's pull us out of that wrong direction and move us in the right direction is the job of a good leader. And what I like that Ray did is he, this is one of the most well-written books I've ever seen in my whole life. It's like this book and 48 Laws of Power, all the Robert Greene books are just so beautifully done. He spent so much time on outlining. And one of the things on this getting into the weeds and rabbit holes is um, he has a little graph in there that has like one, two, three, four, five. And then afterwards it goes on like one on the bottom. It'll say A, B, C, D, E. And um, you could literally graph where the conversation's going and are you getting into the weeds? Are you getting back up on the linear process or what's going on? And it seems like, yeah, there it is. So for each one of these things, Ray's taken the time to not only put it in paragraph form, but also in like picture form. Yeah. And I'd like to say just for anybody that's out there, um, you know, if you want to understand science <laughs> and understand how articles are written, it doesn't matter what is said, just look at the graphs. And the graphs tell a whole different story than graphs and the tables. If you can understand what the graphs and the tables are saying, then that's all that matters. Yeah, I, I read a lot of um, scientific journals in pharmacy school, and you learn pretty quick that you read the abstract, you look at all the tables and charts, and um, then you read the discussion, and you got probably 95% of the message out of that. And you'll probably understand it better from uh, somebody else who just flooded their brain with all of the minutia of the uh, methods. Ooh. Well, it's the, di- the difference between the details and the concept, right? And the idea is, you know... What it says, what the significance is. Yeah, exactly. How it can be applied, opportunities for future studies, all that kind of stuff. Exactly. Yeah, the numbers don't lie, and it's up to you if you want to accept the truth or not. Yeah. All day, baby. Okay, we're on to number five. Hang on one second. There was one thing on that, that meeting topic... Uh, if it's your meeting to run, manage a conversation, a lot of people might feel uncomfortable doing that, feel like, oh, it's discourteous to cut somebody off or, you know, stop their train of thought, that kind of thing. But it's actually more discourteous to call a meeting and then not manage it appropriately because you're really just wasting all those people's time. Or so, any conversation, right? Or Yeah, or any conversation. I mean, it, the diff- in normal everyday conversation, it's really nobody's conversation to run typically. It's just happening organically between two people. But if you call the meeting, if people are there for your meeting and you're not making sure to maximize the time that they're putting in, then you're doing a disservice to yourself, to the meeting, to them. And they're going to walk out of that meeting and say, why the hell did Jesse call that meeting? Like, we didn't get anything done. And maybe they're not like, oh, that was so discourteous or that was really rude of him to not manage that. But at the end of the day, that's going to come back and bite you. You might think you're being nice, but really you're, you're not being nice. You're kind of just being weak. Well, when you when you're the leader, your responsibility is knowing the people who should run meetings and the people who should never run meetings. So, you know, it's I, you can't underscore that piece enough. Yeah. All day. So okay. speaking of running meetings, that number five believability weighted decision making. Man, believability is a rough one today for us. Yeah, it is. Yeah. A lot of bees. A lot of bees. 
B's and L's. <laughs> so I want to. <laughs> I think he touched on it before, um, and I think I'm going to come back to it here. And this is five point two, uh, and this is find the most believably believable people. God, I can't say it either. Uh, find the most believable people possible who disagree with you and try to understand their reasoning. Um, and this is something I deal with all the time, uh, especially when you're in a leadership position, because you know being someone who was, you know. Growing, getting through my my early stages of my career, I wanted to be the leader so bad. I'm like, I I can do this, guys. I I believe in myself. I know the things. Give me a shot. And then as soon as you get there, the number one thing that you deal with is people telling you're wrong all the time. They want to say your your direction is bad. You don't know what you're doing, and this, that, and the other. And it, and really, where the sauce comes in is is okay. Let me sit back. Let me listen to their feedback. And let me get to the root cause of what they're trying to say, right? And and I have it with other partners in my company telling me, do this, do that. So then I give them the floor. Okay, man, I'm wrong. What what's good? What's your what's your perspective? What's the solution? Well, it's 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 you can't just be a fault finder. You have to be a solution provider also, right? So it's like here's how the problem's wrong and here's how we could fix it. Exactly. And and you know, as with anything, it's a comp it's it's a complex problem and a complex solution, right? If you don't understand the playing field as it is, right, the the problems that you're trying to put forth, right, you might not have all the information to un- fully under- understand the problem. And then when you give a solution, you don't understand all the, the playing mechanisms to then offer a valuable solution. So you have people that will get into a meeting that don't belong there and offer va- offer an insight that they don't really fully have. Context-free solutions, huh? Or problem. Yeah. And this falls under being continually truth-seeking as well and trying to always falsify what you've got going on. You find the, the most believable person in the world that, that you have access to and ask them why they disagree with you. And you're either going to become right by fixing the problems that they have or you're going to basically have your armor kind of even hardened up in a good way um, by being challenged by somebody who is very strong in that area and it'll strengthen your resolve because it's like, man, even, even this guy couldn't really falsify, you know, what, what I'm trying to do here. So must be in the right direction. Well, and, and, and I think you'll see, um, you know, I to give some context from my side is that you, you know, again, it goes back to the whys, the five whys, right? And, and, and in most situations, you don't have the space to give that person the five why analysis. So you have to do it for yourself, right? You know, why are they, why are they bringing this to the table? Why, are, why is this their solution? Why is this solution made because of the context that they have, right? And going deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, and that's, it gives you some form of, of context to why they're bringing the solution to you in the way that they are, right? Um, and then you circle back to like, hey man, this is what I think. This is my ob- observation of why you came to this conclusion and bring it forth to them and let them either A, accept it and say, yeah, your man, you're right. Here's, you know, my take. Or they're gonna say, no, this is wrong because of this reason. Either way, you're gonna, you're gonna be better off, you know, getting this information coming your way and being okay with accepting their position and and ultimately either take their advice and and change your direction, or you're gonna just be better off, you know, deciphering information and making better decisions. And you're Matt. Go ahead. Sorry. I was just gonna say, or you just figure out not that you should invite them to any future meetings. Exactly that too. But yeah, your your map's getting more clear all the time through each uh, revision. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. 
5.3, what do you think? 5.3. Think about whether you're playing the role of the teacher, a student, or a peer, and whether you should be teaching, asking, or debating. Um, Love this one. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty cool. Graham, I'll give you the floor. Um, I just think it's cool because it allows you to be gain value in any situation. You know, it's like I could be hanging out with just all the big dogs, but I put myself in the right role as the fly in the room, and then I could absorb all the information, you know, and it just helps you save so much time. <clears throat> but it says um, it's more important that the student understand the teacher than the teacher understand the student, though both are important. Um, and he says, you know, why? Because the teacher is more believable and, you know, they're trying to pass the, the waters going downstream, not upstream. Um, and then number two, uh, recognize that while everyone has the right and responsibility to try and make sense of important things, they must do so with humility and radical open-mindedness. Again, um, trying to go through this whole way and like not let the ego spring up and, and ruin everything yeah. during the whole time. <clears throat> and, and being able to switch from position to position. Right. I mean, we read the principle off the piece of paper and, you know, it's like, OK, well, yeah, I mean, it's simple. But um, while you're actually in a situation, you know, that might not be super positive or just maybe not um, just bright and shiny, you know, reminding yourself, you know, asking yourself that question, how it says, you know, am I the teacher? Am I the student? Am I debating? Am I listening? Am I the one actually teaching? And how do I? Okay, let me look at it from this perspective and listen or let me look at it from this perspective and, and teach. And I, I like this, too, because it allows me so much. Like, I wish I read this book when I was 18, because when I was 18, I was like, people like, Grant, you should do X, Y, and Z. It was like, I don't have anything to offer, you know? Like, who am I, you know? Um, but, you know, I could have said, okay, well, I'm a young, hungry guy. Let me just get three wins. Then I can be an expert in this area. Maybe I could build a business out of those three wins and just keep rolling down that neck of the woods or just, you know, I could just, I feel the power of being able to navigate situations so much more easily saying, oh no, you're a peer or no, maybe I should shut up for a little while or no, screw what you're saying. Let me cut you off. And this is why I'm the expert. Well, and I think another interesting thing is that, you know, when, when trying to analyze, you know, conversation that you have with people in general situations, right. It takes a lot of, um, you know, being in sync with the people in like a, group conversation like we're having right now right we're all we've all read this book um we've all um you know have gone through this and have sat on these ideas um and it's what's so cool about what we're trying to accomplish with this podcast is that we're we're trying to raise the level of conversation so that you're always looking from the top down and trying to understand the perspective of everybody so you have a clearer picture of what this book is trying to tell you so that whether it's us reading it whether that's you listening, um, you know, to the podcast is that you have another perspective to take and try to in internalize what these books are talking about, because those that is why you read books. You read books to get the knowledge that the authors are putting into them so that you can then apply it to your life. And you're going to be, you know, equipping yourself for growth at a at a rate that's just unmatched. I mean, you're, you're learning from other people's mistakes. You're um, you know, you're 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 in a way, cutting corners. I mean, you're going to learn things that you would never learn otherwise. When you're going to do it in a way that's not going to hurt yourself too, you know? Yep, 100%. I, I think some some things that I find common, you know, being young but reading these books is maybe just reading about them but knowing that I haven't really been in 
situations or experiences that are described is that when I am, I'm able to recognize, oh, I read about this. I, I, I recognize a few things and that allows me to see it from the bigger picture and kind of get a lay of the land and be like, oh, okay, I, I get it. It's, giving it's you another more, one of those. It's yeah. more notches in the bat belt for when you come into a new situation. You're like, exactly. wait a minute, this is time to throw the boomerang. Or exactly. This is the time to hit the... Well, what I like about what he's doing is, so he says, like, we are a machine or the organization is a machine. I feel like the mind is like a computer and we have only so much amount of RAM, you know, or processing power. And what he's doing is he's freeing up his mind to focus on things that deserve his full attention so he's not focusing on the minutia. And the principles are helping him escape from all that minutia and systematize the whole thing. So now it's out of his mind. He's not focused on that. Um, so he could be focused on, you know, the prize client or the, the hard problem that everybody's dealing with or whatever he needs to focus on. Well, and he's trying to uh, create, um, you know, an easy path for everyone at the table to get to that high level really quickly, right? If, if everyone has these principles or at least understands the playbook, right, then, then you don't need to warm up the conversation. You don't need to, you know, go through all the steps that it takes to then really start addressing the core problem. You, you go pretty much straight to it. Just get on the field and start playing, huh? Exactly. I had a uh, you know a couple of colleagues that run a law firm out in uh, Roseville, and they were describing that they have uh, exit interviews before people ever leave, and they basically want to find out you know what people hate doing, and they found out that certain people hated talking on the phone, and so they gave those responsibilities to people that did like talking on the phone, and so that people could actually be focused on doing the things that they would enjoy doing the most. And employee productivity went up and so on. And then the executives, the lawyers were, had less to deal with in terms of people being out of place, off task, not getting things done. And so they were able to do what they did best. And I think just like you were really illustrating there, you know, if you can, you know, use your team so that your time is spent in the areas that matter to you the most and that are the critical things that only you do well, then, I mean, that's how, you know, again, organizations can really flourish. To me, that reminds me of just like basic economics, like, hey, Jim makes bread, you know, like Grant catches fish, like maybe they could make fish sandwiches and Grant doesn't have to make bread, you know? <laughs> <laughs> or go to, go to the, uh, you know, Clarksburg to get my tomatoes when you can just get them down the street. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, and, and, um, <laughs> Those are great tomatoes, bro. I love it. No, I'm they were. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I feel like everything I learned is, like, just the what I learned in kindergarten is match like items, you know? So the more that you can match like items and just put the square peg in the square hole and the round peg in the round hole, like, life is easier. But you got to be courageous enough to open your mind to see what the truth is in order to do that. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, going back to those kindergarten rules, if more people in business practice those things, then things would flow so much better. It's like, number one, be respectful to others. Number two, if you're going to bring a snack, always make sure you bring enough so that you can share with everybody. And number three, don't take cuts in line. So, you know, it, I think that this is obviously far deeper thinking in things, but it does come back to the things that we were inherently taught when we were young. And that as adults, you know, people try to zoom past them to put on masks, to put on airs that they, you know, have things under control when really the things that help you grow is to admit, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, or I'm scared, or, you know, would you please help me? 
those are things that kids are able to convey so well and adults, uh, you know, convey so poorly. What's the ego? The ego gets in the way from allowing them to be honest and authentic about their problems. Or it's, or it's also the shell of protection that you build up around yourself such that, you know, it, it allows you to protect yourself from ever feeling the fool like you did, you know, when you were in eighth grade and you happened to fart really loudly in class. Not that that ever happened to me. Well, if but, it did, that's a total alpha move. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. <laughs> well, and I think it's cool because I, I, I can, um, you know, put that to context in you know, my own experiences. When you, when you try to talk to people at different levels of business, you see that, you know, regardless if it's people in their 50s talking about, you know, hey, we're going to do this project and do this thing, is that you're going to have similar problems than when you have a bunch of 20-year-olds doing it. It's just they have more experience and in, in have tried and failed, but you're going to still come across the same exact things. And you, you think that these these people who know what they're doing and the, these idols that we think about have somehow skipped all these problems and don't have them, but yet they do. Well, we are all, you know, wired to think that we're, you know, on an island as adults, you know, and that you know, I'm the only person that's struggling with this issue, where once you recognize and have community of, like, open, you know, conversation, you'll find out, oh, Don struggles with, you know, anxiety as well. He's worried about this. As kids, you commonly are able to relate that because your community is built in with schools. But as adults, like, we start thinking we have to put on all these masks and things that cover up, you know, the facts of things that we're actually really struggling with. And, you know, his, his system is a feedback loop. You know, let's be open, let's be vulnerable, let's be honest, let's grow together. One of my favorite things that he's doing here with the meritocracy is <clears throat> it's like a garden. Life, life's like a garden, right? So he's creating space for these plants to grow. And I feel like previously, you know, there's a lot of cultures and work environments and home environments that um, don't allow the space for you to be vulnerable and be truth and transparent, all that kind of stuff. And so therefore you do learn those tactics of like, you know, building that shell or, you know, making whatever kind of moves that you got to make, um, which aren't great um, practices when you are in a meritocracy, you know, and so... That's well, the way a lot of you know, firms run. It's you're supposed to come in and be a robot and follow a strict formula. And I think that's ultimately what leads you know companies to lose their competitive advantage really, really quickly. All day. Well, and you know what? That's going to wrap up part three. Uh, and going on to the final part of principles uh, to build and evolve your machine. <laughs>